is Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and each week through this show, I have the opportunity to take the topic of my weekly column and expand it beyond what I can cover in a limited world word count world by interviewing many of the guests who help me with my column. This week, several different stories came together. You know, I get a lot of emails from people who read my column, and they send me information that they think might interest me. And I got an email uh, a week or so ago from the Competitive Enterprise Institute saying, would you be interested in a new report that we've just produced on the renewable fuel standard? Well, the email came in on a Friday, and by Friday, I pretty much know what I'm going to write on for that week, so I didn't respond to that. The next week, I uh, someone sent me an email about REN fraud, renewable identification number fraud, and about a gentleman from Indiana who had, had just been arrested and how many hundreds of millions of dollars there was in REN fraud. Now, I've addressed this issue enough that I know that a REN, a renewable identification number, has to do with ethanol and the renewable or renewable fuel standards. So when that came in, I was like, oh, that's interesting, because I had just gotten this email about this new report from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. I then, someone else sent me a link to an article from Bloomberg Magazine, Bloomberg Business Week, and they said, you might be interested in this. And it talked about how the environmentalists have now turned on ethanol. Well, for me, that was like, okay, ding, 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 three things in one week on one topic, unrelated stories, but all current that I could bring together to create my unique column uh, for this week, which I titled, The Renewable Fuel Standard Set Up for Fraud. Now, in our closing segment today, we're going to be talking with Scott Irwin, who uh, says that the renewable fuel standard was set up for fraud, and that's where I got my title. But in our first two segments today, we're going to talk to my friend Marlo Lewis. And Marlo is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and he's the author of that report that I mentioned on the renewable fuel standards. So, Marlo, thanks for taking time out of your busy day to join us here on America's Voice for Energy. A pleasure to be with you, Marita. I don't think that you've been a guest with us before. Is that correct? I, you know, I don't think so, although our path... Yeah, I know we've had Sam Tasman. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, we, we definitely... Yeah, you and, you and I met each other when I very, very first got into this line of work, and I was a total newbie, didn't know what I was doing at all, and I appreciate the uh, insights that you've shared with me over the years. Well, um, I... I appreciate all your efforts for policy, sanity, and and um, the prosperity of the American Commonwealth. Yeah, and, and well, I, it's it's never ending. You know, I mean, you, sometimes people say to me, "How do you come up with topics for your column to write?" You know, I write basically on energy issues every single week, and I've been doing this now, I don't know, four or five years that I've been doing this so consistently. And it's amazing how much new stuff there is to write out there. I mean, I've written on the renewable fuel standard several times. It's, it's a topic of great interest, uh, I think, to my readers and my industry. But this fraud issue was something that I'd never uh, really addressed heavily, never looked at. I'd heard about it. But 
I think it, it adds to the greater narrative that it's perhaps time time to revisit the renewable fuel standard. Well, sure, especially if, if uh, Mr. Irwin's analysis is correct and that the system was set up in such a way as to facilitate fraud, then uh, definitely it, it, it's uh, a subject that our our legislators should should revisit. And, of course, they're all so preoccupied right now with the elections that nothing is going to happen between now and the end of the year. But maybe next year uh, they can actually get around to uh, looking at this program, reforming it, or putting it on a course of ultimate extinction or maybe even repealing it. Because, as you point out, there is a, uh, a growing coalition of odd bedfellows who now yes. are highly critical of this program and want to eliminate at least parts of it. I mean, I remember back in, I think it was 2010, when an analyst at Friends of the Earth called me out of the blue and said, hey, we're working on biofuels. I understand that you work on it, too. Do you want to do you want to play with us? You want to come over and get acquainted? And that's. Uh, I, I can that picture if I got if I got a call like that, I can picture taking the phone away from my face, my ear, and looking at it, going, "Is this for real?" Well, it, you know, it was. I I don't want to mention names on the phone, but uh, she was. <laughs> she is no longer at Friends of the Earth. She she moved on to do other things, but she was exceedingly friendly, and uh, and um, so I I decided yeah let's do this she wants to she want they were very upset about the corn ethanol part of the mandate right. and invited me to come over for a chat and i sat down with the head of the organization uh, a fellow really? named eric pika yeah uh, who is also a very nice guy i mean i don't agree with him on a lot of things but he's really a gentleman and they welcomed me in and uh treated me well and pretty soon there was uh, there was this pretty extensive odd bell at bedfellow coalition that existed at that time to abolish the volumetric ethanol uh, tax credit. It was nicknamed the, or acronymed the VTEC because that was basically what was seen as the vulnerable thing because it had to be it had to be renewed. Uh, so the the smart thing that this coalition did was even though. Um, it was not. It would not phase out, on, or it would not terminate until 2011. In 2010, we started to campaign to abolish it, and that that it turned out was very good tactical advice. Because if you're calling for the abolition of something, you can then you had, then have a reason to muster all the strong arguments against it. And so by the time 2011, by the time the stroke of midnight, December 31st, 2011, came around, uh, Congress had just lost the will to renew it. And even, and in order to save face, the corn ethanol lobby threw in the towel. Uh, they didn't try to keep it alive. And in fact, even, oh, this was just so cynical, they even claimed that they were taking one for the team, that they were, that they, this was their contribution to, uh, to federal fiscal, uh, solvency, that, that they, that they were not going to camp, they were not going to lobby to extend this tax credit, which added up to several billion dollars a year once again. So, but then we, then this Odd Bedfellow Coalition, 
which is basically it was a lot of different industry groups. Primarily at the time it was the part of the ag industry. It was the, uh, the, the so-called barnyard, the people who use corn for animal right, feed. Right, right. Uh, so mm-hmm. it was them. It was also some, you know, some small engine manufacturers and uh, and motorcycles. And the marine engine people. The marine engine people, right. And, and then some free market groups like ours and some taxpayer groups uh, like National Taxpayers Union. So that, and also, oh, the hunger groups like uh, Action Aid, uh, the, the, the groups that were very concerned about rising grain prices and what it was doing to the world's poorest people. So anyway, so then we had to decide, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to stay together as a group? And if so, what's our next, what's, what's our next objective? And, and so we decided to stay together and to fight now the, the renewable fuel standard, which some of the groups, uh, the environmental groups, want to keep parts of, like the advanced uh, uh, the advanced biofuel yeah, which was requirement a in some in some form. Although even there, I mean, I have I have talked to some of those folks who say, "Oh, we don't even think cellulosic ethanol is a good idea. We think we think that that's really not carbon neutral, or or we think that the impacts there on there will be hunger impacts there, whatever it is." But anyway, so this it it it's not you know it's just an ad hoc group. It's not like it's some kind of formal coalition right um but but you know we still keep in touch with each other and uh and and of course you know the activity of the group waxes and wanes depending on the political landscape and as i said the last this year has basically put all reform efforts you know in in suspension uh because the uh the presidential races and the and the congressional races suck all the oxygen out of the air so that's where we yeah, are, you know, or at least that's how we got here. So the tax credit did expire, so there's no longer that, but what we're left with is a mandate. And we've only got about, we have about two more minutes left on this segment, and then when we come back in this next segment, I want to talk much more specifically about your report. But since you mentioned that the presidential elections kind of sucked all the air out of the room, I, I want to go ahead and ask you now, what is your opinion? Because, uh, you know, depending on who wins, do you believe that the outcome of, of potential RFS reform would be very different whether we have a President Trump or a President Clinton? Well, uh, well, I definitely think that, well, I, as far as I know, uh, Hillary Clinton has not said anything really critical of the renewable fuel standard. I could be wrong, but I don't recall that. Trump, that, as you I know, agree with you. yeah, Trump, as you know, actually spoke well of it uh, when he was campaigning in Iowa. Um, yeah, well, you got to consider the source. You got exactly. I don't really, uh, I don't really know how much of what he says at any given time is a matter of settled conviction or just, you know, a a thought that pops into his head. But I think this is significant, that Ted Cruz won Iowa, even though he campaigned against the RFS. So one thing we know for certain is it is no longer a third rail of national presidential politics. And that may mean that we could have some reform action uh, not opposed, but actually uh, uh, supported by the White House in 2017. 
Yeah, that's pretty much what I what I feel. I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago on Trump's energy policies, and I spent more than an hour on the phone with Representative Kevin Kramer from North Dakota, who is Trump's energy policy advisor. And based on my conversation with him, now we did not get into ethanol, and I have contacted Representative Kramer about this when I wrote this piece, and he, he couldn't really give me a definitive answer of where Trump stands these days on ethanol. But I, I said to him, you know, I believe that if Congress was to send a bill to a, a, a Trump White House, I believe a President Trump would likely sign it. Because though he did, as we, you know, as you mentioned, uh, come out in favor of the ethanol mandate in Iowa, I think if Congress sent him a bill, it would sort of give him an out. He wouldn't have to be campaigning for that. But he could easily say, well, you know, this is what my Congress wants, and, and so we're going to go ahead and, uh, and sign that. That's at least how I kind of see it would, would come out. Sure, that's, 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 that's very possible. You know, I, I remember, this is, this is ancient history for some people, but back in September of 2000, Pres uh, candidate G.W. Bush came out in favor of something like EPA's clean power plan. He came out for what he called for what was called then multi-pollutant regulation of electric generating facilities which would have capped carbon dioxide emissions at the nation's uh, you know in the nation's electrical sector. And so it was really an anti-coal policy that some that some clever person sold him on without him really thinking yeah. it through, and we were able then once he was elected to talk him out of it, and then of course the usual suspects, uh, people like at the time Congressman Henry Waxman, w w said he was outraged that Bush had betrayed him. I got um, We got to take a break. I'm over okay. time, and uh, we'll we'll be right back with Marla Lewis. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not. You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. We're in the middle of an engaging discussion with Marlo Lewis, who is a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute and the author of this new report that I talked about at the beginning on the renewable fuel standards. So, Marlo, tell us a little bit about this 
specific report, how it came about, and, and what you hope to achieve through it? Well, it came about this way, that the EPA is in the process of finalizing the, the blending requirements uh, for biofuels of the, of the renewable uh, fuel standard for the year 2017. And so the EPA is supposed to do this just on the basis of objective economic and scientific criteria. But, of course, this is a very politicized subject, and so EPA is subject to a lot of political pressures from different interest groups, each pressing their case. Uh, that the that the targets for for biofuel production and sale should either be higher or lower depending on which which interest group you're 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 talking about. But anyway, there was a coalition of 39 senators who weighed in, and they sent EPA a letter, and uh, you know demanding that EPA, as they put it, get the renewable fuel standard back on track, which means to bring the mandated volumes of biofuel closer into line with the unrealistic, unattainable statutory targets that were set way back in 2007. And now, one can of the you take a second here? Can you take sure, a second? Because you, you and I follow this, so we, you, yeah. you and I know what we're talking about. But for someone who's listening who doesn't follow this, can you explain briefly why we, what this rule the, the says about these, these targets, what you're talking about, that they're unattainable and, and so forth? Can you explain that? Yes. Well, see, there was the original Renewable Fuel Standard Program was – enacted in 2005. It was the enacted under the 2005 Energy Policy Act, and it set a, an annual schedule for the production and blending of, of biofuels into the nation's motor fuel supply, extending from 2006 uh, through 2012. And it was actually quite feasible. I'm not saying it was a good idea. But it started out at 4 billion gallons mixed into a, a motor fuel supply of about, you know, 140 billion gallons, going all the way up to 7.5 billion gallons by, by 2012. Well, the, the, the problem with all of the – this is a form of corporate welfare because what it is really is uh, the, the, the government tells the refiners – to guarantee a market for their competitors' product, for people who make ethanol rather than gasoline, and like all That's corporate an interesting welfare, perspective. yeah, like all corporate welfare programs, the beneficiaries always want more. They're never satisfied with the extent to which the market is rigged in their favor at any given time. They want more. So, you also had President George W. Bush, who who. Um, you know, took a lot of heat over his opposition to the Kyoto Pro Protocol and wanted to look green about something. So he got on board with this agenda. And so oh, basically what that. happened is, is that in, in, in uh, <clears throat> yeah, because, you know, he was Mr. Oil, you know, and he wanted to prove that, yeah. no, he's, you know, and so he said, we're addicted to oil, which we're not. We value mobility. You know, if there was something that would give us... Our, more mobility for the buck, more more mobility bang for the buck than gasoline. We'd switch to that in a heartbeat. But anyway, so he got on board with this, and so Congress in 2007, with George Bush's uh, blessings, expanded the renewable fuel standard so that it would require 
36 billion gallons of biofuel in the, in the nation's motor fuel supply by the year 2022. Um, so anyway, it turns out that 21 billion of the 36 billion was supposed to be so-called advanced biofuels, which are at least 50% less carbon intensive than petroleum on a what's called a life cycle basis. We can get into that mm-hmm. if you want later. But the thing was that 15 of the 21 billion, no, excuse me, 16 of the 21 billion gallons of advanced biofuel were supposed to be something called cellulosic ethanol or biofuel, which is motor fuel made from the inedible fibrous components of, 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 of living plants. And it turns out that even though President Bush said in his 2006 State of the Union address that cellulosic ethanol would be practical and competitive in six years, by 2012, which was six years later, there was a virtually no, no cellulosic ethanol produced outside of laboratories you know, and pilot projects, but nothing commercial. So basically, uh, the, whole, the whole $36 billion gallon uh, target for 2022 has had to be scaled back commensurately over the years to, to take into account just that, that, that cellulosic ethanol uh, failed to materialize as a, as a commercial viable entity. It's just now beginning to enter into commerce in very limited quantities. Uh, hundreds, uh, EPA is hoping hundreds of millions of gallons next year. We'll see if it happens. But the statutory target would be, I think, I'm just, I'm just using my memory now. I don't have it in front of me. It would be something more like 5 billion gallons. You know? so, so anyway, there's that. And, but, uh, and then we can get into this as well, Marita, but there's another reason why the targets are infeasible, the statutory targets, which EPA, under the law, gets to adjust every year in case, in case the central planners didn't know it all years in advance, which they don't. Um, and right. one of those things is called the blend wall, that there are, there are a number of reasons why it's very difficult to sell large quantities of motor fuel that has high ethanol content above 10%. Right now, right now, the standard gasoline in most places is E10. That means motor fuel blended with 10% ethanol and 90% gasoline. Now, if they, if, if, uh, let's say E15 or E30 or E85, that's that would be blends that that include. 15% ethanol or 30% or all the way up to 85%. If those were selling like hotcakes, then you could actually reach this 36 billion gallons that is mandated for 2022. Um, but the problem is, uh, number one, is that ethanol has less energy by volume than gasoline, about a third less. So a gallon of ethanol has about a third less energy than a gallon of gasoline. And so unless the ethanol is way cheaper than the gasoline, you actually um, you actually end up spending more money to drive the same distance if you use a high ethanol blend than if you use gasoline. You also have to fill up more often. And so that's a market barrier to the sale of these high ethanol blends. Now, then that has ripple effects throughout the whole transport sector. It means that very few gas stations are actually going to 
to install the blender pumps and storage tanks that are that that have to be different uh, than the the regular E10 or or regular gas storage tanks and, and blender pumps. It also means that you're not going to sell a whole lot of cars that are that are flexible fuel vehicles, vehicles that can operate on anything from regular gasoline all the way up to E85. And so you don't really have the compatible uh, fueling and infrastructure and vehicles to accommodate high ethanol blend fuels because there is so little demand uh, for, for those fuels by consumers because in most markets, those are really not a good deal. It means that you that you lose money. Right now, for example, and it changes as, as ethanol prices and gasoline pl- prices change from week to week or even day to day, but we have a government uh, website called fueleconomy.gov, which actually calculates how much the typical motorist would spend in a year to fill up a flex fuel vehicle with either gasoline or E85. And it's been as hot. The difference I've seen over the last couple of years has been as high as $1,000. In other words, you'd have to spend $1,000 more a year to drive the same distance really? on the 85. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, fuel, the fuel economy penalty sometimes gets that extreme. Now, right now, it's between $200 and $350. That's how big the price penalty is, depending on whether you have a small flexible-fueled vehicle or you, have, you basically have a you know, a semi-truck that's flexible-fueled. But so, so uh, as my colleague, Sam Kasman, uh, our, the law, our, our general counsel of my organization, what he often right, likes to say is, Right, and he's, he's hey, been on the air with me here before. Yeah, right, right. Um, he likes to say, well, if ethanol is such a great bargain, why do we need a law to make us buy it? And he's absolutely <laughs> right. It's because it's yeah. not a great bargain that we need a law to make us buy it. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, that, we're down that, to, that we're down, to we're down to we're down to just issue. a couple minutes. We're we're sure. down to just a couple minutes. The time has flown by, and I want to ask you real quick. I think it's you who told me. You know, yeah. I talked to several people doing research and preparation for writing, but I think it was you who told me about the E zero gasoline that is for sale in the United States. Gasoline that has no ethanol in it. And uh, did you tell me that the volume of E zero being sold has increased? What I what I what I mentioned is that um, last year, according to the Energy Information Administration estimates, consumers in the United States bought 5.3 billion gallons of E0. That that's gasoline that is ethanol free. That gasoline has a lot of fuel economy, you know, um, and. Uh, and the other thing about it is that it's 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 you can't really use anything beyond E10 for motorboats, motorcycles, um, lawn equipment, and so on. But even E10 is a problem for a lot of these smaller engines because ethanol attracts water. And when water gets into an engine, it 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 either corrodes the engine or can kill it. And so that, that means that it's a headache for people. For example, there's a, one of the congressmen, the Congressman Welch um, uh, of Vermont, says that ethanol, that E10 wrecked his chainsaw, you know, because, yeah. because he didn't, he, after, after filling up the chainsaw and using it, 
he didn't empty out the E10. Yep, and so yep. there was water in, yeah, so, so now if you have E0, you don't have to empty it out, if, you know, you, because it's not going to attract water, so it's much, it's much more uh, user-friendly, and, uh, and also it's less, it's less risk that your, that your beloved chainsaw or lawnmower, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, is going, is going to be wrecked, and, yeah. So, Marlo, anyway, we're so out of time big, again. There's, there's uh, a big market for E0, but under EPA's proposed blending requirements for 2017, there really isn't any room for more than about 200 million gallons of E0. So this is not a policy that facilitates consumer choice. It would mean that somehow 96% of the market for E0 would have to be squeezed out in order to make room for the increased ethanol that EPA wants to force onto the market. So I think that's what we were talking about. Yeah. Well, we're out of time again. We're about over again. So, Marlo Lewis, thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. I encourage folks to join us today, Marlo, and for the rest for our listeners, we'll be right back after this short break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. In this segment, I'm delighted to have Brandon Williams with us, who is the vice president for the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers Association. And he was a big help to me in writing my column this week in explaining why biodiesel RINs are so susceptible to fraud. It's a complicated story, and Brandon and I recorded uh, a, a segment for another show earlier today, and I just kind of had to say, you know, it's a really complicated thing. Uh, well, certainly not easy. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't really totally explain it, so I'm delighted to have you with us today uh, to share, um, you know, how this all came about with our listeners. 
Sure. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. In relation to biodiesel RINs, first of all, the ethanol mandate itself is a very complicated program to begin with. It's actually not one mandate. It's a series of mandates that are nested within each other and that all have requirements for specific biofuels themselves. So if you consider it as buckets inside of buckets, the smallest bucket on the inside uh, is uh, initially that, that grows with the life of the mandate, but would be the, the cellulosic biofuel requirement. In addition to the cellulosic biofuel requirement, there's a separate biomass-based diesel requirement, and then there's both of those buckets are nested within an advanced biofuel mandate uh, that is that is bigger than the sum of those two other buckets. And then you have the overall renewable fuel mandate that is uh, that those other buckets are nested inside as well, and that sum is is bigger than than the or that total is bigger than the sum of the other parts. And so what you have is, and that's where you get the de facto mandate for corn ethanol. While there isn't a specific conventional ethanol mandate, uh, even though it's the largest part of the biofuel and the fuel supply right now, it represents the difference between the overall requirement and all these other subsets. Uh, now, as it pertains to RINs, it's a very, because, so you can tell just by my explanation, which is an attempt at simplicity, but in and of itself is fairly complicated, that in practice the program is extremely complicated. And in terms of compliance, as refiners, we are actually not the ones who really have control over getting biofuel to the consumer because in over 95% of the retail infrastructure in this country, the gas stations that you'll pull up to on a regular basis are owned and operated by independent businesses. They're not owned and operated by refining companies. And a lot of the fuel that gets to the gas station, before it gets to the gas station, it's actually – uh, mixed into a final product at a terminal, and not all refining companies own terminals. So a good chunk of the terminals out there are also actually independent business people. So it's a very complicated program with multiple chart parties in the chain from the refiner on down to the actual consumer. And when you really think about it, it's a consumption mandate. So the ability to meet the mandate is really determined on whether or not consumers want to buy this fuel. So because of that, how do refiners comply? Since refiners aren't the ones responsible in the vast majority of cases for delivering fuel to the, the end use consumer, how does it work? Well, as, as my members, the refining industry, they make the petroleum portion of the fuel supply, and then they send this fuel supply to a terminal. In some cases, they might own the terminal, but in a lot of cases, they don't own the terminal. And then ethanol produced by a separate manufacturer will also be sent to that same terminal. And the petroleum portion of the fuel supply and ethanol will be blended into the fuel supply at this terminal. And this is so, where... So, just so I'm clear, ahead. then your members are generally, they're blending the petroleum part. They're taking the raw crude oil and converting it into gasoline, which then gets sent to a terminal, and someone else is producing the ethanol or biofuel. Right. So our members actually okay. manufacture the petroleum portion of the, of the fuel supply. So we'll, okay. we're the first purchaser of crude oil off the open market. Most of our members actually don't produce crude oil out of the ground. We're just manufacturers. So we right. produce the right. crude oil um, through complex chemistry. We turn the crude oil into a usable gasoline product that's sent to a terminal. And then it's uh, and at that terminal, it's blended with ethanol 
and which is the the fuel that you end up that ends up in your gas tank and, and that's why you see usually on the pump a label that says contains up to 10 percent ethanol that that blending of ethanol occurs at the terminal and then how does it get from the terminal to the pump so usually uh, it, you know it's it's depending on where the terminal is and where the gas stations are but oftentimes it's it's trucked out from a terminal to so the when gas I, station so when i when i pass so. a truck on the freeway and it's you know got say conoco phillips or whoever on it I, mean, I don't think it usually has that on it but it's obviously a truck full of gasoline that truck probably already has the ethanol blended into it yeah, most likely. That has a finished fuel product that is being delivered to a retail station to be sold to consumers. Okay. All right. So go on then back, I'm sorry, to the how the wrens get in there and... Sure. So, so, this, so this inflection point of the terminal is where the RIN system comes into play as it pertains just to the ethanol portion of the requirement. Uh, and this is important because it really is the precursor for explaining why biodiesel has been subject to fraud. But in relation to ethanol, when an ethanol producer makes a gallon of ethanol, that gallon of ethanol has a RIN that is attached with it. Uh, and it's just it's an identification number from EPA. It's got something like you know, 16 characters is not even a simple number. Uh, but this, this RIN number is assigned with this this biofuel gallon. And the gallon travels to the terminal. Now, the program is set up so that the RIN stays with the ethanol until it is blended with petroleum at the terminal. Once it is blended, the RIN can be detached, and then it becomes a tradable commodity. So, for example, if some of our members, let's say they don't own the terminal where the blending is done, that's a, that's a different business. So our members would send our fuel to the terminal, the terminal does the blending with the ethanol, and the terminal operator gets the RIN. Uh, and how refiners get RINs, there's lots of different ways that, that happens. Sometimes a refiner might have a contractual relationship with the terminal that says, hey, I send you my fuel, but you give me the RINs. Uh, sometimes the terminal just keeps all the RINs and sells it to different parties, irrespective of who sends them the fuel. Uh, and anybody can buy RINs. So you'll have investment firms that might buy RINs, and that's all they do is buy and sell RINs. Uh, and it is important to have uh, a, a mechanism like that for fungibility, because particularly with our smaller members, they might not have enough market power to be able to negotiate with terminals getting RINs, uh, and they don't have their own blending facilities. So they might be completely reliant on just buying RINs for people to comply with the mandate just by the nature of the market. But as it, when it goes to ethanol, so you have a lot of different parties along the chain. So you have a lot of different people with a stake in ensuring that, you know, they're not getting something fraudulent, right? So the terminal wants right. to make sure that, hey, they're getting a, a real gallon of ethanol that they know has a RIN attached to it so they can actually blend it in a product that gets sent out. Biodiesel is a little bit different. With biodiesel RINs, there is no requirement, with biodiesel, with biodiesel fuel, there is no requirement that the actual RIN stays connected to the gallon of biodiesel until it's blended with petroleum somewhere. So the way the program works with biodiesel is as soon as the biodiesel manufacturer produces or says they produce a, a gallon of biodiesel, yeah. then they get that RIN, and it's automatically detached so they can sell the fuel, to one place and they can sell their end to another place. Uh, and the reason that happens is 
Um, technically, some people could potentially use 100% biodiesel to fuel an engine. Uh, it's not really widely used, and it can't be used all throughout the year. High concentrations of biodiesel have a tendency to gel in the winter time, so you don't send. To, that's why, you, on an average basis, you really don't anywhere uh, see concentrations of higher than, let's say, five percent biodiesel and fuel on an on an annual average basis. Uh, but because technically, theoretically, somebody could use B100, which is 100 percent biodiesel, in some way, shape, or form, that was the original justification for allowing the RIN separation to occur when the biodiesel was actually produced. But that's also the reason that we found out has made the biodiesel portion of the mandate more subject to fraud. So what you've seen historically in, in the instances of fraud that we've seen, what usually happened is biodiesel producers alleged producers say they're actually producing physical gallons. Uh, and sometimes they might have the equipment to, uh, so they, they, they have all this documentation, pictures, all this other stuff to, that makes it look like, yeah, they're a real legit biodiesel outfit. Uh, and, and so got a website so, and stuff that makes right. It so they they look so you know on on kind of cursory glance. If you have a checklist of things you have to send to EPA to say yes, I'm a biodiesel producer, then you know they could yeah they they, they can get rins that way. But in relation to the fraudsters, what's happening is these guys are saying they're making physical gallons, and on paper they're logging you know their production records, all these other things they 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 create to show that they are producing biodiesel fuel, but in fact they're not producing biofuel. Uh, but of course the government doesn't know this. So uh, they, you know, see this, this person's a biodiesel producer, the biodiesel itself is, um, you know, gets a RIN, uh, and, um, and they sell those RINs to obligated parties. Uh, and what it's turn what's happened in a couple instances where we've seen the fraud is that these guys were just on paper, producing fake biodiesel solely so they could get the REN uh, and sell the REN as a tradable commodity. So they didn't have to bear any of the cost of actually making the fuel because they were lying about it, uh, but they got this, this very valuable uh, commodity, um, for which was biodiesel RINs, and then they'd sell those RINs. Uh, and then in addition to the problem with that part of the fraud, the other problem it created is that the victims of that fraud, who are our member companies, refiners, the way EPA's rectified the situation or addressed the situation, they haven't rectified it. The way they've addressed it to date is that they have gone off to, after the fraudsters. We've seen folks go to jail, so there is enforcement yeah. on that end. But in terms of complying with and the program. And there's millions of dollars worth of fraud. Millions, millions of dollars yes. in fraudulent rents. Yes, uh, I think it might even be in the hundreds of millions. It's definitely in the hundreds of millions of dollars um, if you add them all up. Um, it's it's a, yeah. it's a very very significant figure. And we're we're down, Brandon. We're down to about a minute left. Sure. So um, so just trying to sum it up real quick. Uh, what happens is EPA said to refiners, "Hey, you got to go out and actually buy replacement RENs. Uh and and that's not really fair to us. You know, they're, they're telling us after the fact, so we can't go back in time and buy re real biodiesel or even biodiesel RENs for that period. So that just has the effect of actually increasing the requirement for the program. Uh, in the existing year, uh, and so and, and EPA tried to develop a program to, you know, certify these RINs, but they still said if even despite that they're fraudulent, you refiner have to go buy new ones in the event they're found to be fraud. So, um, so that is kind of a 
uh, a detailed explanation of why the biodiesel program to date has been the one that fraudsters have taken advantage of to the to the detriment of not only my member companies refiners but consumers as a whole. Yeah, in, in, in like 30 seconds left, you've done a great job explaining that. Do you think there's more fraudsters out there than what have been caught to date? Oh, it, it's hard to say, but uh, if there are, it will have significant adverse implications for the fuel supply. Right now, the mandate is mandating more biofuel. It is right up against the point of, of saturating the fuel supply with as much as it can handle. So if there is more fraud and EPA says we have to go out and buy RINs, you know, that's going to, you know, we might not be able to find those RINs, and that could have implications for the fuel supply. We can't produce fuel if we don't have enough RINs. To us, we've been talking with Brandon Williams, Vice President for the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, and we'll be right back after this break. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action, from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to our final segment of America's Voice for Energy. I'm grateful today to have our next guest willing to join us from the Boston Airport. Hence, you'll hear a little bit of noise in the background. So I think Scott has to say enough to hang in. You are talking with Scott Irwin, who is the Agriculture and Consumer Economic Center at, um, and I'm, Scott, I'm sorry, what college are you with? I am with the College of Agricultural, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences at the University of Illinois. Uh, University of Illinois, I'm looking at your page on the Internet, and I just suddenly, as I was reading that, realized I don't see University of Illinois there. But thank you for joining me. I, I, you know, I discovered you, Scott. We've not talked before, and so I appreciate you taking your time to talk to me. But in doing my research for my column this week on um, biodiesel fraud, uh, I found a quote from you that I found really interesting. In fact, I found it so interesting that I used it in the title of my column. And okay. in this, you say, because refiners can buy them to satisfy their obligations to introduce renewable fuels into the national market, you say that these RINs, which we already talked about on the show, are valuable. And you say a combination of little regulation, the small business nature of biodiesel producers, and higher than expected prices for credit produce a rash of fraud. And then you go on to say it kind of it's kind of set up for fraud. 
And that's the part of your quote that I used in the title, is set up for fraud. Can you explain that to us? Well, I think the way I would put that in context, in particular, um, early in the history of the uh, renewable fuel standards, I'll just say RFS for short. Right. Uh, there, there wasn't a, there was no expectation that the RINs would ever get this valuable. And so I don't think that the regulation was, market regulation was really very well thought through for something that would be this, this valuable, you know, a dollar a gallon uh, for, you know, billions of gallons of these credits that have to be generated every year. And, you know, uh, so they were just, you know, tradable credits and there, you know, wasn't any real accountability in terms of uh, the, the creation of these things, monitoring, enforcement, you know, the kind of guardrails we have in most of our markets. So um, it wasn't surprising that early in the history of the program there was this kind of crash in terms of market fraud, particularly for the biodiesel RINs because they were so valuable. Yeah, and I want, I want to get into that a little bit more, but before we go there, you said that there wasn't a perception that these uh, RINs would be as valuable as a dollar a gallon. What was kind of the opening price of these RINs? You know, I'd have to go back. Most people didn't pay close attention to the biodiesel initially. Most people were paying attention to the ethanol RINs, which originally were only worth a few cents. And so... Uh, that was the uh, category that most attention was placed on, and there was only a few cents. Refiners didn't really care too much about them and didn't gather much much headlines. But the biodiesel RINs, which are a different category, were, I, I can't quote off the top of my head, but I think that they were at times were um, at least a dollar even early in their history, but I, I'd have to go back and check that. I don't yeah, have those I mean, my, right my, in front of me. My research validates that as well. I mean, I'm not the expert on it that you are. I, I have a fresh topic I address every single week, so I'm not, I'm not really an expert on any of them, but my research showed that I think they can they've been as valuable as $1.50 a gallon for these wins. For uh, the uh, D4 biodiesel in 2013, I believe that was the peak. Um, but they, you know, in 2011 and 2012, even at times, I believe that they were close to, if not above a dollar a gallon. How did you get involved in following this topic, Scott? Now, that's an excellent question. You know, what is an ag economist uh, from the University of Illinois doing in the middle of the RINs market, like I found, find myself, and I write constantly about it. Um, the, the, the real answer is... Um, you know, I'm interested in anything that affects the price of corn and soybeans is really what I'm interested in. And, you know, as the RFS, uh, you know, started to be rolled out uh, in 2005, 6, and 7, it became obvious that it was going to have a major impact on um, our grain markets. And so I just started... Uh, digging in and trying to understand it. Then I discovered these RINs markets and 
it didn't seem like there were very many, if any, economists trying to figure out how they work. And so I just dug in and started uh, trying to figure it out. So are you now like one of the foremost experts on this topic? Well, you know, I don't want to, you know, uh, make more of my uh, expertise than, than I should, but I'll put it this way. I, I don't know anyone else who writes this frequently about uh, the RINs market as I do. Okay, well, that's, that's good. I mean, I can relate to that. I mean, in my little world, in my little niche, I'm like the only one who does what I do in the whole country. And uh, with the prolificness that I do it and the scope that I do it, so, you know, I, I can relate to that. So, Scott, because you're an ag economist, you're interested in corn and soybeans, as you said, are you uh, a fan of the RFS and the, the program, or do you think it needs revision? Obviously, um, the ring situation has a lot of fraud. Well, I think let's just start with your last statement. There you know, was indeed, obviously, considerable fraud in, that only proven in the biodiesel RINs, and the EPA, once this was uncovered, um, for the best that I can tell has pretty much eliminated it with their new quality control program. So I think it's important to state that, you know, okay. probably for the last several years, if you're looking at the RINs market today, you know, um, can't say there's zero fraud with it, but to uh, any material degree, I really don't believe that that's a problem with the RINs market today. Uh, so. That, that's that's my first point that I, I would make. Um, and I think... Yeah, and we, the, we talked in the last segment, we talked with Brendan Williams from the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, and he uh, did address that, that the EPA had, had put in this new program um, to try to certify the RINs, but yet if uh, a, a refiner purchased uh, a fraudulent rent, and there are, uh, I, I would guess, still plenty of them out there in the marketplace that maybe haven't been discovered yet, but maybe they all have, you can address that, that, that the certification did nothing to protect the refiners from fraudulent rents. I think that there's still definitely some risk that way. Um, uh, but again, you know, that would be evident in the uh, aggregate statistics on you know, the number of RINs that are generated and registered with the EPA, you know, fraudulent and legitimate would show up there. And then when people tried to turn them in uh, for compliance, then you'd have a lot fewer RINs available if there was a large-scale fraud. We just don't see any evidence of that in recent years. I, you know, I just think that that's uh, not a big problem right now. Well, yeah, I, 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 I really think that that's clear. Now, uh, to your uh, other question about you know, should we have an RFS or not, um, my answer to that is, as a you know, professionally as an economist, um, I'm I'm neutral on that. Uh, you know, and so what I just try to figure out is, okay, it's the law of the land, then. Um, what, I, I just try to call balls and strikes on the economics of uh, what it means for you know, winds, markets, refiners, and uh, others, so, uh, and, and corn and soybean farmers. 
um, and and I just take it as a given at this point. You know, that that that's a question for a political economist uh, uh, rather than myself. Well, you would, you would, I'm sure, acknowledge that it has been something that has been economically beneficial uh, for the coal industry. Absolutely. No, no, uh, no disagreement whatsoever uh, with with that statement. We can, you know, there's a lot of debate, and it's it's really not very easy to pin down exactly how much. Uh, but I personally think that it's uh, one of the two big factors that explained the run-up in grain prices that we saw between 2006 and 2012. So, uh, that, go ahead. Yeah, now, you know, uh, given enough time, we've had acreage expansion and growth in yields, and, uh, you know, we'll, that's kind of like the last war now, at least in terms of grain prices. We're sitting here with uh, prices in my home area where my family still farms in Iowa under $3 a bushel. So the grain boom uh, has still uh, lifted the boat somewhat, but not nearly as much as it had. So do you think, um, I don't know, this may be out of your scope, um, if, if the RFS is repealed or reformed, what do you mm -hmm. think will happen to the demand for corn ethanol? And I realize corn ethanol is different from the biodiesel that we're talking about, but because you're but because you're more in the ag, I just want to ask you that. That's yeah, excellent question. Um, I, I can answer on both. If if the RFS and the biodiesel tax credit went away tomorrow, then I my research would show that the United States would use zero gallons of biodiesel. Okay. That 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 is. Um, I think you might have, maybe somebody has strong environmental preferences, they might still use it in buses and to some small degree, but there's, there's little if no um, market for biodiesel based on its own cost today. Um, so that and one now, is... We're down to about a minute left, Scott, just so you okay. know. Then on ethanol, um, yeah. I think quite surprising to most people because of its place now as the cheapest source of octane and gasoline blends. Domestically, I don't think we would see uh, one gallon less used of ethanol if the RFS went away tomorrow. Well, good. I mean, that's basically what I said in my column and other people that I have talked to have basically said the same thing. So we don't have to worry too much if, if it's repealed that we're going to hurt the corn farmers. Yeah, I think that that would be, um, uh, it uh, wouldn't be um, as, as disastrous as, as some people might forecast, I agree. Yeah. Well, great. Scott Irwin, I so appreciate you taking your time to join me here today on America's Voice for Energy, calling in from the Boston airport. We appreciate your time, and I look forward to interacting with you in the future. Oh, I look forward to it, too. Thank you, and I uh, enjoyed being on the show. Thank you so much, and we'll be, we'll be back next week with another edition of America's Voice for Energy, heard every week on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.